0: This episode is brought to you by GoSim. Start saving 85% on international calls with a free SIM card by visiting GoSim.com slash Best of the Left. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, The Colbert Rapport, and The Rachel Maddow Show.
1: Obama decides, you know what?
2: I'm coming to your house.
1: I'm coming to your house. So he goes to the House Republican meeting. And I'll tell you what, policy wise, I got issues with this. And I'm going to explain why I think the overall strategy is a bad idea. But here's what you cannot argue with what he did today absolutely worked. Politically brilliant. Okay? He goes in there and. It was, everybody couldn't take their eyes off of it. Everybody's watching it. Okay? So, one of the most, in, so reporters, again, Ezra Klein from the Washington Post said, maybe the most interesting political moment he's seen in his lifetime. Okay? Not in terms of, like, of course, the Obama election was gigantic, he said, but as a snippet in time. And he starts a debate with the House Republicans. And they say, all right, how about this? And he says, all right, here's my answer. And you know what? He. Effectively answers all of their questions, and by the end, the Republicans go, "Oh my God, what did we do? Why did we allow cameras in here? This guy just took our came into our house, slept with our wife, and he's walking out the back door. What happened? Okay, so we're in a lot of trouble here."
3: Uh, this about health care and the health care debate because I think it also bears on a whole lot of other issues. If you look at the package that we presented. And there's some stray cats and dogs that got in there that we were eliminating. We were in the process of eliminating. For example, that for example, we said from the start uh, that uh, that it was going to be important uh, for us to be consistent in saying to people, if you can have your, if you want to keep the health insurance you got, you can keep it. That you're not going to have. a Anybody getting in between you and your doctor in your decision making. And I think that some of the provisions that got snuck in uh, might have violated that pledge. And so we were, were in the process of scrubbing this and making sure that it's tight. But if you were to listen to the debate and frankly how some of you went after this bill, you'd think that this thing was uh, some Bolshevik plot. No, I, I mean, that's how you guys that's how you guys pre- presented it that, that, and so I, I'm thinking to myself, well, how is it that a plan that is pretty centrist and, no no look i mean i I'm just saying I, I know I know you guys disagree, but if you look at the facts of this bill, most independent observers would say this is actually what's many republicans it, it is similar to what many republicans proposed to bill clinton when he was doing his debate on health care so all, all i'm saying is we've got to close the gap a little bit between the rhetoric and the reality. i'm not suggesting that we're going to agree on everything whether it's on health care or energy or what have you but if the way these issues are being presented by the republicans is that this is some wild-eyed plot to impose huge government in every aspect of our lives what happens is you guys then don't have a lot of room to negotiate with me i mean the fact of the matter is is that many of you if you voted with the administration on something are politically vulnerable in your own base in your own party you've given yourselves very little room to work in a bipartisan fashion because what you've been telling your constituents is this guy's doing all kinds of crazy stuff that's going to destroy america and i i would just say that we have to think about tone it's not just on your side by the way it's a, it's on our side as well this is part of what's happened in our politics, where we demonize the other side so much that when it comes to actually getting things done,
1: it becomes tough to do. Now, that was great. That was an A. Plus. Okay? I mean, let's keep it real. I'm
2: going to attack it. I'm going to hunt you down. I'm coming for you.
1: I'm coming. Okay. He came to their house, and that was the answer I was looking for. Okay? He says, Look, you're calling me a Bolshevik. You know that's ridiculous. And he says it in such a reasonable way, and he explains why, uh, you know, that they're going to get isolated by their base, et cetera. Now, understand something though. Don't get carried away with, you know, is this going to solve things? Are we going to have bipartisanship after this meeting? Hell no, hell no. Okay, no, but that's not the issue in this case. Okay, what he's doing is he's not really making a case to the Republicans. Keep it real. He's making a case to the American people. He's saying, you see this? Look, we're having this conversation here. I'm not a Bolshevik, I'm a real guy, they're real guys, and they're being driven by their base, and that's why they're being unreasonable. And I'm reaching out, and they're still not going to vote for me. So politically speaking, it's a great move to go in there and do that, make your case as he did there. doesn't mean he's going to get results from the Republicans, but it does mean as a matter of politics, it was 100% the right thing to do, so it works out great for him
2: Everybody's darling, but she never lost her head. Even when she was given head, she says, "Hey babe, take a walk on the wild side."
4: Said, "Hey babe, take a walk on the wild side," and the colored girls go doo doo.
5: doo, doo, doo. My guest tonight, <laughs> best-selling author, renowned presidential historian. Please welcome back to the program, Doris Kearns Goodwin. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
4: oh. to right, see you. What's happening.
5: It's not the State of the Union without Doris Kearns Goodwin here. Nice to see you.
6: Nice to see you too. What did you
5: so? Uh, uh, President Obama's first State of the Union, uh, h- historic. What what struck you about his speech last night?
6: You know the thing that historians think when they think about these speeches is I thought the words were good. I thought the tone was good. I think he may have reminded people why they liked him in the first place. The question is, will these words lead to action? That's what really matters. I mean, for example, LBJ in 65, he talked about Medicare, aid to education, voting rights for black Americans. He got them all in six months' time. FDR in 1941 called for Lend-Lease to help poor beleaguered England. He got it in three months' time. That's what really matters. So either if you're great or if you're terrible, I mean, my favorite one is Nixon, right? He's six months away You don't hear that phrase a lot. (laughs) But you'll like this. Mm-hmm. He's six months away from being impeached. He's up there giving his last State of the Union. He's trembling, his voice is trembling. And he means to say we have to replace the discredited welfare system. And instead by mistake, he says, we have to replace the discredited president. Oh no, I meant welfare <laughs> system. <laughs> <He> <laughs> now those are the good ones. Yeah, yeah, those are the real good ones. <laughs> yeah, so well, this is
5: have you ever seen a majority in Congress and, and have the presidency behave so ineffectually? You know. Even the speech last night, while powerful, in no way, you know, if, if Reagan was very able to, whether you agreed with him or not, articulate a simple vision of what he wanted to do. I, I still don't understand why with things like health care reform, they don't say, here's the four things that are broken. I couldn't
6: they agree They don't with let you, you
5: uh, uh, if you have a pre-existing condition, we're going to fix that. They don't let us negotiate drug prices. We'll fix that. We'll expand uh, Medicare until you're 55. We'll do that. And we'll do tort reform. That's it. Four simple
6: things done. So you know what I think he has to do now? I think he's got to do jobs and financial reform in that exact simple language. Tell people, go out among the people. He was on the road a lot this last year. He's got to stay and go to the people, not go out of the country. And he's got to tell them, here's the three things we need for jobs. Here's the three things we need for financial reform. Get them excited. But he's a
5: great speech uh, uh, deliverer, and he he writes a great speech. But is he a great communicator? Because I I, I get the sense sometimes that uh, uh, he wants to be too fair.
6: I think that's true sometimes, but I think he's on the edge now of being more defiant. I mean, my favorite part of the speech was when he said to the Democrats, look, you've got a majority. You've, we have more people than we've had in decades. Come on, you got to not run for the hills. But
5: didn't that strike you as disingenuous because he's the leader of the Democratic Party? Well, then he's so got to act that way from now on. He seems cut off from them. Well, the whole administration seems to be on an island. You have the Democrats who uh, vow to keep fighting uh, amongst themselves, and then... <laughs> You have the Republicans who, no matter what happens, are a homogenous bloc, and then
6: you have the Obama administration. They seem like separate units. Okay, but here's the way to tie them together. You go out, and you have the jobs reform, you have the financial reform, you get those bloated bankers, you tell the country, this is what I'm going to do, and then you have the Republicans blocking it. They won't do anything. You say, okay, go filibuster, you guys. Go, f- let's, let's show what it looks. You know what it is if you filibuster? Here's the rules you got to stand on your feet for as long as you do it. You can only have milk or water. You can't go to the bathroom. So, for example, you oh my keep... not it's g- <laughs> just like
5: joining a fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> so here's
6: wait, what but I, you no don't wait, have you, uh, to filibuster anymore. No, all no, you have to do is it. Well, I'm it. telling them, let them filibuster. Do you realize how great they're going to look, these Republicans trying not to go to the bathroom? When Strom Thurmond was filibustering for 24 hours, he took a steam bath to get all the liquids out of him so he wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. Finally, he had to go, and the filibuster was broken. So let them try it. Let <laughs> and them that was try sim- it.
5: That was civil rights rights legislation. Yeah, exactly. But the point is, they knew what they were filibustering. I think with health care reform, nobody has any real clear idea of, of, of what they're doing. And and the, the filibuster has become just as weapon. Apparently 80 or 85 percent of all legislation now is filibustered. Is that at an
6: historic high? No, this is definitely an historic high that's going on. I mean, for the Civil Rights Act in 1964, they filibustered for 57 days. And finally, the country got up in arms and they broke the filibuster. So that's what I'm saying. Let them do it. Let them do it. They go there and they read their recipes. They tell about their women. They talk about whatever's on their mind. They're going to look like jerks but, in your language.
5: Thank you, Baron. I appreciate that. You know what? I am a classy guy. But it's the only thing that I would say is it's all well, well and good to say, well, let him just filibuster. But I think that's just a symptom of a deeper problem, which is the Democratic majority and the President of the United States have not articulated a clear legislative vision based on things that are actually broken. I he agree. has made a huge mistake by treating Congress as an equal
6: branch. No. <laughs> you like that, don't you? Yeah, no, not, the not, president not, not is the bully pulpit. He's got to have the power, he's got to defy them. Thank you. I'm with you. I, really? Well, on that. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I don't know about the
5: rest. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming, and, and yeah. I look forward to seeing you again. It's always a delight thank to have you yeah. on the show. Thanks a lot. You know, some people that just
4: won't understand what you're for your message, but I don't understand.
8: You know, when you drill down to the center of what most motivates a traditional conservative, you're always going to find a fear of change boogeyman lurking somewhere in a corner. It's that very mentality that prevented 13th century Europeans from sailing ships too far in any one direction. They were fearful of sailing off the edge of the earth. Once they overcame their fear and made it to North America. The conservative American Tories were too terrified to declare independence from Great Britain because that change was just too dramatic in their minds. Lord knows how frightening ideas like evolution, the United Nations, Lady Gaga and Obama has to be for the die hard conservative. Lately, conservative leadership has surfaced with a new idea about how they can ease the suffering that change causes for their fearful conservative flock. I call it rewrite therapy. It's where they create an alternative reality by rewriting or erasing historical events that cause them anxiety. It began with a conservative Bible project. That's a project aimed at removing from the Bible anything that conservatives regard as too liberal or too liberal bias. For example, the oddballs working on this project tell us that liberals changed the ancient wording of the Bible in such a way that free market thinking was distorted. That's what they said. They said it was distorted with wording that promotes concepts of socialism. They want to see words like laborer and fellow worker and comrade yanked from the Bible because they're too dangerous. That's the change they can believe in as a conservative. The bleeding heart liberals this gaggle of nuts worry about apparently are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John who are responsible for the liberal tone that turns the teachings of Jesus, according to them, into scary socialist dogma. But change is in the air everywhere. In Texas, a conservative group of state board of education members demanded a rewrite of their history books. Their argument is that liberals distorted the truth about the age of McCarthyism. Joe McCarthy truly was one of their own. It makes sense that those conservative labored thinkers in Texas would want to rewrite the history about McCarthy and conclude that he was a great American hero. But before those conservative Texans rewrite that history, let me at least preserve a little of it right here. Their conservative hero destroyed the lives of hundreds of decent scientists, writers, actors, career military personnel, politicians, and clergy as he created a Cold War hysteria that dwarfed the Salem witch hunt. In the end, Crazy Joe was exposed as a delusional drunk who suffered with paranoia, delirium tremens and anxiety attacks that should have caused him to be institutionalized by most standards. Rewriting that history to find sanity and decency in the conduct of Crazy Joe McCarthy is the equivalent of the conservative effort to reinvent Nixon's Watergate criminal history. Well,
9: I'm not a crook.
8: I'm certain that rewrite therapy provides some small amount of anxiety relief for a, a conservative crowd that's continuously terrified by any notion of change. But as they clamor to rewrite history in a way that eases their fears, and as they rewrite the Bible in a way that changes the very spirit of Jesus, I hope they're at least going to leave in place this small, unrevised, unedited Bible verse, and it is this, the truth shall set you free. That's John 8:32. Your own. I am
0: more proud of this show and love working on it more than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members only raw feed. This includes audio and video content from the show and bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot.
1: Here's Hanserling making up a whole bunch of stuff and then Obama's response to it when Obama was talking to the House Republicans.
7: Jeff, Mr. President. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Mr. President, a, a year ago, I had an opportunity to speak to you about the national debt. Mr. President, shortly after that conversation a year ago, the Republicans proposed a budget, and unfortunately, I believe that budget was ignored. The old annual deficits under Republicans have now become the monthly deficits under Democrats. The national debt. This is what I don't understand, Mr. President. After that discussion, your administration proposed a budget that would triple the national debt over the next 10 years. Surely you don't believe 10 years from now we will still be mired in this recession. Now, very soon, Mr. President, you're due to submit a new budget, and my question—I is... know there's a question in there somewhere because you're making a whole bunch of assertions,
3: half of which I disagree with, and I'm having to sit here listening to them. At some point, I know you're
7: going to let me answer. Uh, That—that's the, right. the question. You are soon to submit a new budget, Mr. President. Will that new budget, like your old budget? triple the national debt and continue to take us down the path of increasing the cost of government to almost twenty five percent of our economy. That's the question Mr. President. Jim, with all due respect, I've just got to take this
3: last question as an example of how it's very hard to have uh, the kind of bipartisan work that we're going to do because the the whole question was structured as a talking point for uh, running, running a campaign. Now, look, let, let's talk about the budget once again, because I'll, I'll go through it with you line by line. The fact of the matter is, is that when we came into office, the deficit was $1.3 trillion. 1.3. So So when you say that suddenly I've got a monthly budget that is higher than the annual, or a monthly deficit that's higher than the annual deficit left by the Republicans, that's factually
1: just not true. And you know it's not true. All right, now that was Obama getting tough, right? By my b- book, that wasn't very tough at all, right? I- I'd have gone back to him being like, hey, listen, you Hanserling clown. Now, look, with a 1.3 1.2, people make arguments either way. Let's, I'm going to go with a more conservative number, that it was a $1.2 trillion deficit left to Obama, okay? So I'll trim some of w- what Obama saying. I go to Hanserling and say, listen, we're on national TV now. I'm going to put you on the spot do you understand anything about numbers do you understand and acknowledge here that i was left a 1.2 trillion dollar deficit because there's no arguing it it's not a, it's not a, it's not he said at that point i disagree with a lot of what you're saying it's not a matter of disagreeing it's a matter of facts now do you will you now admit to your uh you know to your followers that you've been making up stuff about oh the monthly deficits now are larger than the yearly deficits were before out of your ass, you made it up. Okay, where's your numbers? That's a lie. Okay, so now he can't do that because he's reaching out in a bipartisan manner. So we can't have that, right? Now, so that's why what Obama said there was seemed very tough to us because Obama never uh, hits the Republicans, right? But I'd put Hanserling on the spot and say, "Is I need you to agree right now is a 1.2 trillion dollar deficit that your party left behind? You never voted against those bills." You voted for all those Bush bills. Do you not agree? And it's not a matter of dispute or agreement. You have to right now concede that is what you did, Hanserling, not what I did. Of course he didn't go in that direction. So now Hanserling, and I love in the middle, he seems like he's like almost surprised, like, this seems like a campaign slogan. Oh, you don't say, really. Of course you think they're trying to talk to you in a reasonable way? So here comes Hanserling, he's on the Washington Journal. And he's going to get a question about raising taxes, and he's going to pull more things out of his ass. Let's watch.
2: Kathleen Wright sends us this
6: question for you by Twitter. She writes, we're $12 trillion in debt. When do we start raising taxes to pay for it?
7: Well, I I personally don't believe that we are undertaxed. I think instead we have a spending problem in Washington. Uh, You look at the record, uh, taxes are still gone up uh, substantially over the last decade. Not true. Uh, And so uh, taxes have consistently run, uh, uh, if you look in the post-war era, about 18.5% of our economy. Now, spending has been about 20% of our economy, but under the spending uh, programs that we have now, in the next generation spending is going to go from twenty percent of the economy to forty percent of the economy and that's why republicans would like to put on binding spending caps and force congress to do what they needed to do and figure out reforms and draw up priorities i myself am working on a constitutional amendment that would ensure uh, that the federal budget doesn't grow beyond the ability of the family budget to pay for it and that is limit the growth of government with the exception of emergencies and declarations of war but limit course, the growth wars. of government to you the growth to. of the yeah. economy otherwise we're on the verge of being the first the first generation in america's history uh, to leave the next generation with fewer jobs less opportunity less freedom uh, and a lower standard of living who caused uh, that, uh, that job collapse you know the punk you 're the whoever Twittered who said why don 't we raise taxes? We can do that, but all the estimates are if you want to balance the budget in the next ten years by raising taxes, you will have to put a sixty sixty percent tax increase on the American people. How many <laughs> Americans will no longer own a home, send a kid to college or start a business because of a crushing sixty percent tax increase that 's the magnitude of the tax increase that would be necessary. Uh... To balance the budget, and I'm not going to go there.
1: <laughs> I mean, this guy's awesome, man. He just makes stuff up. He's like, first of all, in the uh, last decade, uh, taxes have gone up a lot. <laughs> the exact opposite is true. We had literally record breaking tax cuts in the last year, okay? Then he makes up a number of oh, if we, in order to, uh, de- you know, balance the deficit uh... in the future, we'd have to raise taxes to, oh, what do I got here? Is it 50? Is it 70? Sixty percent. Totally made it up. Okay, where? Which which study says that? Which think tank has that? Where? Where? Nowhere. Right? And and second of all, I mean, think about this. Right? Again, it's another straw man argument. We either raise taxes to sixty percent, or we don't raise them at all. Can we try forty percent? Can we try forty-two percent? And can we try that not for everybody? But for people making over $250,000 a year, can we try that? Nope, 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 nope. If are going to raise taxes, it's going to be 60%, and uh, the American people don't want that. Okay. So now he claims that he's in favor of uh, deficit reduction, which is rather curious, because we just voted on a couple of things, including in the House, uh, on pay-as-you-go. So if you're going to increase spending, you have to find a way to pay for it so that it's deficit-neutral. Now, this is something that the Republicans claim they're in favor of, or have claimed that they're in favor of for a long time. Came up for a vote, guess how many Republicans voted for it? Donut. Zero. They all voted against deficit reduction. Why did Hanserling and all of his friends do that if they claim they want deficit reduction? It's because all they want to do is defeat Obama. And if Obama reduces the deficit, well, then they can't attack him politically for not reducing the deficit so they're going to vote against it okay so that's where you know they're a hundred percent disingenuous but it continues uh, how about um Job creation, because you said you wanted job creations. In fact, we did a clip for you guys a couple of months ago where Boehner and everyone else comes up with the same slogan, and it was fed to them by Frank Luntz, which is jobs, 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 which is what they've been saying all along, that Obama's focusing on health care and other things when he should have been just focusing on jobs. So Obama puts together a jobs bill, guess what happens? That's right, zero Republican votes. They don't have any other alternative. They vote against deficit reduction, they vote against the jobs bill. So what happened to jobs, jobs, jobs? All right, well, in the Senate, they got a Deficit Reduction Commission, which I don't agree with, okay? I think it's a fraud to cut Social Security and Medicare. But who proposed it? The Republicans did. So that comes up for a vote, and guess what happened? Most of the Republicans voted against that. It was their own proposal. That's the commission they wanted. Obama says, okay, let's do your commission. They vote against it. Why? Because they just want to kill everything that Obama proposes. And they don't want to fix anything, because God forbid if we fix anything, if the economy gets better or the american taxpayer does a little better well then they can't blame the democrats for the problems you understand how this game is played and obama going to come and have a gentle conversation with this duplicitous sum of a bitch well that's not how i'd roll okay and if you care about doing the right things getting the right bills passed and getting the and winning politically both of those things you wouldn't let ass get away with these laws
2: some non-me-related news over the weekend. On Friday, the Republicans were holding their annual retreat. It being a retreat, I assume there was lots of deep breathing, maybe some pranayama-yoging, or meditative visualization of corporate tax cuts. But then, President Barack Obama rudely barged in by accepting their invitation to join them, stomped their buzz with his compromise cleats, and dropped the
3: B-word. Bipartisanship, not for its own sake, but to solve problems, that's what our constituents, the American people, need from us right now.
2: He wants the Republicans and Democrats to start a new relationship, but their old relationship was perfect. It was tantalizingly unconsummated, like Bella and Edward. (laughs) Only, instead of creating movie lines, this relationship creates unemployment lines. (laughs) Well, there was only one way for Republicans to fight this compromise agenda, and it brings us to tonight's word. Siren song. Now, congressional Republicans, you listen to me. The president is trying to lead your party to its doom. Now, sure. (laughs) Everybody loves the sound of bipartisanship. But for Republicans, actually doing it is political suicide. Even the president knows that.
3: I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that many of you, if you voted with the administration on something, are politically vulnerable in your own base.
2: Exactly. It is hard to explain to your base that you found common ground with black Hitler. (laughs) And if you negotiate with the president you will give up your best talking point the talking point that he won't negotiate with you that's why you need to follow the advice that your leader and orange teletubby john boehner gave on meet the press leadership is about standing on your principle yes true leaders stand on their principles not on their accomplishments remember your party is seriously considering a purity test for candidates. So, <laughs> ideologically, you have to be like ivory soap, 99.5% pure. And and you have gotten off to a good start. For instance, last week, the Senate tried to authorize a debt commission proposed by Obama, a commission that many Republicans have proposed in the past, but this time, none of them would vote for it. I say, good job, fellas. The danger is Obama might offer you something you can't resist. So, you need to prepare yourselves. You must steal yourselves for that eventual moment. Now, I recommend reading The Odyssey by Homer. Homer what, do we have his last name? No? You're fired. (laughs) You see, Odysseus was traveling home from the Trojan War. He knew that on the way home, he had to sail by the Island of Sirens, who lure sailors to their death with their sweet songs. So he, he knew he had to take action. So to keep him from steering his ship into the rocks, he had his men fill their ears with wax and tie him to the mast. Well, I think <laughs> Republican leaders like John Boehner need to follow his example and lash yourself to the mast of your principles. Then you can sail safely into reelection, no matter how tempting the president's bipartisan offer. Now to demonstrate, I am going to handcuff myself to my desk. Okay. There you go. Nice and snug. There we go. That is more painful than I thought it would be. Okay. There. All right.
3: Do your dirtiest. Making tough decisions about opening new offshore areas for oil and gas development. Drill, baby, drill! No! Building a new generation of safe, clean nuclear power plants in this country. Oh, I love nuclear power. It's like radioactive coal. Fight it, fight it. Eliminate all capital gains taxes on small business investors. Oh. We cut taxes, we cut taxes, God. we cut taxes, we God. cut taxes. God. I made it. Well, let me repeat. We cut taxes.
4: No!
2: You son of a bitch! But don't worry. That crafty radical leftist may try to undermine your principles by proposing your principles. But he'll never propose your most cherished principle to disagree with anything he proposes. And that's the word.
7: We cut taxes. Oh yes, sir.
0: Supporting the show today is GoSim. They have international cell phone plans that will save you around 85% when you travel abroad. Right now, for listeners of Best of the Left, they're offering free SIM cards for you to use in your own phone. You just add minutes to the plan when you travel, and those minutes never expire. The service works in 175 countries, and in 75 countries, including all of Europe, you can receive calls and text messages for absolutely free. Check out this deal at go sim.com slash best of left. Be sure to use this special URL, which is also linked on my website so they know I sent you. Gosim.com slash best of left.
9: Protecting the views of the minority makes sense, but not at the expense of the will of the majority. Indeed, as the rules are being used today, a single senator can hold a bill hostage until his or her demands are met.
10: It was freshman Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, who joins us in just a moment. He's becoming the latest in a swell of Democrats voicing their opposition to the use and abuse of the filibuster. These include Senator Bob Benendez, who called the recent Republican uh, use of the filibuster, quote, unprecedented in the history of the United States Senate. White House advisor David Axelrod said recently, quote, the Republican strategy in the Senate is to turn 50 into 60. In other words, no longer do you need a majority to carry The day in the Senate you need 60 votes for everything because the Republicans are filibustering every single bill. We need to call that out, and they need to explain to the American people whether throwing a wrench into everything at a time of a national emergency is the appropriate policy. Even the vice president of the United States is warning about the same issue, saying, quote, this is the first time every single solitary decision has required 60 senators. No democracy has survived needing a supermajority. It used to take a majority to pass things in the Senate, 51 votes. Now it apparently always takes 60. And even though the Republicans in the D.C. punditocracy would have you believe this new uh, 60 is the new 51 paradigm is totally normal and nothing to worry about and actually sort of awesome, um, it's not normal. What's going on right now is really a lot not normal. The filibuster has, in fact, never been used this way as an obstruction to absolutely everything the Senate even thinks about doing. Here's what I don't understand, though, about the filibuster fight. In 2005, Republicans were threatening to do away with the filibuster because they didn't like Democrats holding up President Bush's judicial nominees. Remember this? Democrats were so convinced at the time that Republicans both would get rid of the filibuster and could get rid of the filibuster that the Democrats caved. They gave Bush his judicial nominees in order to preserve the filibuster. Whew. Republicans were right on the brink of getting rid of that filibuster. But the Republican majority in 2005 wasn't 67 seats strong. It wasn't even 60 seats strong. It wasn't 59 seats strong. There were 55 Republicans in the Senate in 2005 when they were threatening to get rid of the filibuster. And somehow they convinced Democrats that with those 55 seats, they could end the filibuster. If fast forward to today, Republicans are using the filibuster in a way that has literally never been done in all of American history. And yet Democrats suddenly don't believe that they can make or carry out the same end the filibuster threat that they themselves were so scared of five years ago. Suddenly now that they'd be the ones doing the killing, Democrats don't believe the filibuster can be killed with a simple majority, even though they were utterly convinced the Republicans could have and would have done it to them in 2005. Joining us now is Senator Tom Udall, Democrat of New Mexico. Senator Udall, thanks very much for coming on the show tonight. It's nice to have you here.
9: Great, Rachel. It's good to be with you on the show. Let
10: me ask you about that uh, the 2005 versus today uh, scenario that I just laid out, because I have been confused about this. Democrats were convinced enough that Republicans could kill the, major- kill the filibuster with just a majority vote in 2005. They were so convinced that they caved on a lot of the issues the Republicans wanted them to cave on. Now Democrats, many of them, don't seem to believe believe that they could get rid of the filibuster with a majority vote. Do you think that's right? Yeah. Well,
9: what has happened, Rachel, is is we've gotten ourselves into a terrible box, Uh, and this is what the box is. First of all, we've put into the Senate rules the provision that uh, the rules in the Senate will continue from one Senate to the next. So that's one. And the second provision is that you can only change the rules in accordance with the rules, which require 67 votes. So here we have a box that we've created, and we can never get our way out of it because we don't have 67 votes. Right. My way out of it, Rachel, is very simple. And we go back to the framers. We go back to the Constitution. Basically, what we say is, in Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, It it says that each House, the Senate, uh, may determine its rules of its proceedings. So at the beginning of every Congress, by a majority vote, we are able uh, to determine our rules. So the kind of abuse that you're talking about that has occurred, we can consider that, we can look at it, and we can decide as a group, 51 of us, if we have the political will to step forward, We decide we're going to change the rules. And the reason you change the rules is to make them work better for the American people, to get the things done the American people sent us here to do
10: is that procedure that you're talking about for changing the potentially at least considering changing the filibuster rule with a fifty one senator vote is that the same thing that republicans were proposing doing when they were threatening what they were calling the nuclear option back in 2005?
9: The the big difference is that the nuclear option was applying to Uh, judicial nominees only, and so they were objecting to what was happening uh, on the filibuster with judicial nominees, and they were talking about doing it uh, in the middle of a Senate session. Uh, the difference, I think, between my proposal and, and what they were proposing then is that at the beginning of the Congress is when you adopt the rules. That's what the House—I served uh, five terms in the House. At the, the very first thing we would do at the beginning of every Congress is adopt the rules, and then those rules serve throughout that particular Congress. In this case, that you're talking about, the nuclear option, in the middle of the Congress, they were trying to change the rules in midstream to apply to the judicial nominees. What I'm starting is a movement within the Senate now uh, to say at the beginning of the 112th Congress, uh, the first order of business ought to be adopting rules for the 112th Congress, and under the Constitution and the way the framers saw it, we can do that with a majority vote.
10: Let me ask you to take uh, the political temperature on this uh, for us a little bit in, in Washington. I'm sure you've done that already when you considered introducing uh, this resolution. But I feel like I'm, I'm hearing something. I'm hearing it from, from David Axelrod on the White House and from Vice President Joe Biden and from colleagues of yours, including Senator Kaufman and Senator Menendez and, uh, and, and yourself, Senator Stabenow, earlier this week on this show. Um, a, a number of senators and people who ought to have a lot of influence in this debate, like the White House and the president of the Senate, the vice president, um, all expressing real concern about the filibuster situation uh, and and an interest in potentially changing this. Do you feel like there is momentum in Washington to finally do something about this instead of just complaining about it?
9: I, I think there's momentum in Washington, and I think more the people discover Uh, how the rule has been abused. I mean, if you go back to 1960 on major pieces of legislation, the filibuster was used about 8% of the time. You come up to our time period now, 2007 to 2009, and we're talking 70% of the time on major legislation, uh, the filibuster uh, being used. And so, when people find out uh, that really, this isn't a real filibuster. It's a threat of filibuster. It's a shadow filibuster. Many times, we're in a quorum call, uh, rather than actually forcing a member of the a uh, the, the member of the party that wants to filibuster to get up and talk uh, about. Uh, what it is they oppose. I mean, that's the thing that we've removed from the rules. It used to be in the Senate that if you were filibustering, you stood up, there was a physical dimension to it, that you when you became exhausted, you'd have to leave the floor. That was the idea of the filibuster. Now, it's a threat. It's a procedural device. It's used as a weapon of partisanship. And so what I'm hoping to do is have a discussion this year call all all of my fellow senators together and see can't we get worlds rules that work for us, that work for the American people and that move us down the road to getting things accomplished rather than using the Senate rules to block uh, what the American people want us to do back here you quiver like a candle on fire. you out, maybe tonight we
4: could.
1: Daily Coast commissioned a poll done by Research 2000 and they're a different polling organization. Now, Daily Coast is liberal, so if you want to put a grain of salt on it, go ahead. If another organization wants to do this poll, great, okay? But no one has questioned the methodology behind this so far. So uh, what did they find out about Republicans? And this was a poll of 2,000 Republicans. In fact, there is one slight issue with this poll. It leads a little too much to the South. I know, of course, the GOP is Uh, heavily centered in the south, but uh, still a little disproportionate in that regard. So keep that in mind, okay? So, uh, 39% of Republicans believe Obama should be impeached. That's the first fact. Now, for what? Nothing. Who cares? Why do you need a reason? Uh, Remember, uh, Democrats were scared out of their mind about impeaching uh, Bush when, you know, he clearly and brazenly broke the wiretapping rules and laws, lied about it in public, let alone the torture, let alone the war that was completely unjustified. I wouldn't even gone for the war. The wiretapping alone was an easy crime to prosecute, but of course they didn't go in that direction. Obama hasn't done a damn thing. Even the Republicans in Congress, as ridiculous as they are, have not said that Obama's done anything to get impeached, or even done anything wrong legally or by any rule or regulation. Thirty nine percent want him impeached twenty nine percent are not sure yet they're still thinking about it uh... thirty two percent out of the goodness of their hearts, said that he should not be voted out of office yet All uh... then we go to how many uh, believe he was born in the u.s thirty six percent of republicans believe obama was not born in the united states that's a plurality twenty two percent are not sure could have been the u.s. could have been indonesia could have been kenya not not positive yet and uh... forty two percent think that he is a natural citizen Oh my bad, that's the plurality in this case. Okay, hey, are they not reasonable? Forty-two percent think he was born in the US. Thirty-six percent no, twenty-two unsure. All right. Then we go to um, is Obama a quote racist who hates white people? That's quoting Fox News' Glenn Beck. Now, yeah, come on, this can't be a high number, could it? Thirty-one percent of Republicans believe that in fact Obama is a racist who hates uh white people. Thirty-three percent are not sure. They're still thinking about whether he's a racist or not. And 36% said, nah, he's not a racist. Are they not merciful? These are unbelievably high numbers. (laughs) Okay. All right, we continue. You think those are not high numbers. So what percentage do you think think he's a socialist? (laughs) Buckle up. 63% of Republicans believe that Obama's a socialist. 16% aren't sure, and 21% say that he is not. He Obama is so far from a socialist I can't begin to describe it to you. Now a lot of Americans think that socialism is not so bad. They did a poll and the media was shocked by it, where a plurality of Americans said, "Yeah, socialism not so bad." Because understand, socialism is a combination of the uh, government and and private industry. Sometimes you go, you, you some things belong in the public sector, some things belong in the private sector. It depends on how you define it. Almost every form of government can be described as socialist. But we view socialism as in this country as oh way to the left, almost communist, total government takeover. Is Obama there? Come <laughs> on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay. Uh, but apparently the Republicans th- think that way. All right now um, the next one's another great one. 2four percent of Republicans believe Obama wants, quote, the terrorists to win. 2four percent. 33% aren't sure. Maybe he's back in the US, maybe he's back in the terrorist. They're you know, they haven't settled on that yet. And forty three percent said that he did not want the terrorists to win. Uh twenty-one percent of Republicans believe Acorn stole the two thousand and eight election. Now that's a lower number than I've seen in previous polls. And fifty five percent are not sure fifty five percent of Republicans are not sure whether the last election was stolen by Acorn something that does not have a shred of proof to it not one iota of proof there's, there's no republican a legislator politician representative or senator has come up and said acorn stole this district or stole this vote or, or rigged that election in any way shape or form in the 2008 elections yet 21% of the republicans are convinced it happened and 55% aren't sure whether it happened uh, luckily it's solid 24% believe it did not happen twenty-three uh, percent of Republicans believe that their state should secede from the United States. We're back to crazy land. Okay? Nineteen percent aren't sure. Luckily, fifty-eight percent said, uh, ah, let's wait a little bit on a civil war. No, we should not secede for now. Fifty-three percent of Republicans, said maybe this is the most ridiculous of them all, believe that Sarah Palin is more qualified to be president than Obama. <laughs> Look, in some ways that's the most absurd. Uh In other ways, hey, look, at least it's a Republican politician. It's not like Acorn and the aliens came and snatched the election and and Palin's daughter, I don't know, okay that'll be a ne- the next theory, it wasn't Sarah Palin's daughter's fault. it was the alias who impregnated her all right uh so uh Sam Stein of Huffington Post had a great line on this uh because he was writing about, hey, look, how do you uh get the Republicans?" To do any real compromise or bipartisanship, when their base is, you know, look at the guys, look at the numbers. The base is full of lunatics, right? I mean, at least look. Is an amalgamation of these numbers. You get a solid third of the Republicans who are just out on, you know, planet Uranus, okay, and they're in La La Land. So, and then the great middle of the the party, about 50 percent of the party, isn't sure about anything. Is it, ah, maybe Acorn stole the election. Maybe Obama's a racist who hates white people, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you compromise with these guys? Because the politicians can't do it. Because then their base will turn on them. And he had a great line. He said, "How does a Republican lawmaker explain to his or her die-hard base that it's important to work on legislation with a racist socialist president who's illegally holding office only because of the help of Acorn?" Those guys aren't going to listen to reason so that's why a lot of these republicans are never going to vote for obama under any circumstance because we're looking at it from the wrong perspective we think well rationally wouldn't it make sense to vote for this uh, if you're in favor of deficit in favor of deficit reduction or whatever else it might be but they're not looking at it from a rational perspective they're looking at it from this guy is an indonesian who hates white people and stole the election well obviously i can't vote with that guy and that explains a lot of the Republican intransigence in the country.
4: This ain't the life I thought I'd live This ain't the home I'd hoped we'd make This ain't the path I thought I chose This ain't the sky I'd hoped we'd see This ain't the tree I thought would grow This ain't the God to which I pray This ain't the song I thought I'd write these ain't the words I wanna say But I can't be all me This
5: ain't the flag I thought we'd raise this It's been a week the since the Democratic Party was stung in the Massachusetts Senate special election race, by the upset victory of Republican Scott Brown over challenger uninspiring T. Nothington. And that loss really got Republicans thinking about what Obama could do better. I think the only way he uh, stops a Republican landslide in November is if he moves to the middle. I hope he moves to the center. And,
9: uh, and, and stops pursuing this extraordinary left-wing agenda. And if he will move to the political center, I think he'll find a lot more Republican support.
5: What? Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Where is the Republican support in the center? Are, are you talking about Lieberman? <laughs> the center of what? A Freedom Day prayer circle? Where is there <laughs> Republican support in the center? You know what? Nice try, Republicans. Guess what? No team is taking advice from the opposing team's coaching staff. Oh, you threw an interception. Uh, you might as well bench Peyton Manning now.
1: Ah. The president is going to have to scale back, uh, his agenda. Moderates and independents, even in a state as democratic as Massachusetts, just aren't buying our message. Obviously, You cannot just
5: proceed as if nothing happened. I still believe in healthcare reform, but this isn't the ticket. The uh, current legislation, both in the Senate and the House, was overly ambitious.
9: I think he's allowed the left wing to pull him too much in that direction.
5: They took the bait. They're warming up Curtis Painter. Backup quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Should I have gone with Jim Sorge? Don't you get what the Republicans are doing? They're f***ing with you You actually think moving to the right will appease them Let me see if I can explain this to you remember the show the wonder years No matter what you do the Republicans are not going to let you into the station wagon They're never going to let you in and here's the worst part. You're the majority party. It's your car! (laughs) But apparently Democrats have already flipped on the right turn blinker. In the last few weeks, Democratic Senator Chris Dodd announced he may drop plans for the Consumer Protection Agency part of the financial regulatory bill. On the the cap and trade front, three Democratic senators have co-sponsored a bill with Republicans to not allow the EPA to even regulate greenhouse gases. Not far enough to the center for you? Mr. Cavuto, show them what they've won.
1: Two Democratic congressmen want to extend the Bush tax cuts. That's right, the ones for the rich. I'm back.
5: (laughs) Miss me, miss me, now you want to kiss me. (laughs) (laughs) How crazy is that? And by the way, what Obama leftist agenda are you all running from? Guantanamo, still open. Gays in the military closet, still closed. Afghanistan troop surge. No health care public option or single payer. The only vaguely progressive action taken by this administration is an increase in government spending to stimulate us out of recession. That seems to be the sum total of our leftist swing.
1: President Obama will ask Congress for a three-year spending freeze in his very first official State of the Union address. They're not
5: going to let you in the car.
3: <laughs>
5: oh, I get it. How about now? Senior political correspondent Asif Manbi joins us from Washington. Asif, thank you so much. The the Democrats, I can't even wrap my head around it. They're backing away from protecting uh, uh, the environment, safeguards for consumers. Some now want to extend the Bush tax cuts. What is going on? John, yes, it's true. The Democrats are making
4: some concessions, but the real question is, will it be enough for republicans to forgive them wait to for for republicans
5: to forgive them yeah for winning the last election <laughs> What? Why do the Democrats need the Republicans to forgive them? Because they're going to need bipartisan
4: support if they're ever going to see Bush's agenda come to fruition. Even with Scott Brown, Republicans still only have 41 votes. It's a majority, but not a (laughs) supermajority. They're going to need 19 more Democrats if they want to avoid a
5: filibuster of right-wing policy. The Democrats... The majority party might filibuster. No, nah, they'll go along with it. Oh, for God's sakes! <laughs> so, one year after winning overwhelming majorities on a platform of change, and with their agenda mostly unrealized, the only choice for Democrats is to just go back to the policies that caused us some trouble over the last eight years. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully.
4: Well, with the Republicans in such a strong position right now, I'm not even sure that that will satisfy them at this point. And this new regressive wing of the Democratic Party says they might be willing to put everything on the table, including previous legislation victories, Social Security, Medicare, child
5: labor. All right. So the Democrats now, to, to be conciliatory to the Republicans, are willing to repeal child labor laws? Well, we're losing a lot of child jobs to China
4: right now. All right school is up for grabs. Evolution on the table, John. Gotta get Democrats to move to the center on evolution. Democrats are now willing to give up the teaching of evolution. No, actual evolution. (laughs) Ben Nelson and Max Baucus have co-sponsored legislation requiring Democrats to repeal the gains that they have made, quote, frontal lobe wise it's a four-part plan to secure the democrats permanent place in the lower echelons of society a new class of subhumans dependent on republicans for food shelter and tax
5: cuts so that that's it that's basically it the democrats are done
4: done no no this is a new beginning in fact the democratic party has come up with an exciting new logo that embodies their commitment to capitulation presenting the dnc possum it says you can't hurt us anymore because we're already dead
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. I just have a few things to say. First of all, uh, please continue voting at Podcast Alley. Uh, The competition is stiff there, so I really do need your vote to stay up there in the top 10 list on their homepage. And you spending, you know, the 30 seconds it takes to cast a vote really does help spread the word of the show and get more people to listen. Second of all, the bonus clip for today available to the Best of the Left iPhone app users is another great segment by The Daily Show talking about the political shift in D.C. that's taken place in the the past few weeks. So check that out if you're using the app, uh, of course, available in the iTunes App Store for just two bucks. And finally, of course, I want to thank a couple of members, as I always do. Bob H. signed up on December 4th, and, and Bob went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance, so thank you, Bob. And Stephanie B. signed up really recently, just on February 3rd, also signed up for a full year in advance and went above and beyond the minimum donation amount. So huge thanks to Stephanie and all the members who keep the show going. I just couldn't possibly do it without you. And and now that my quote unquote real job is coming to an end right here in the middle of February, it's it couldn't possibly be more important that if you have any ability at all or any interest at all of becoming a member, now's the time to do it. Of course, members, uh, Besides having the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing that they're helping to keep the show going and, and keeping me hard at work uh, producing these shows, they also have access to the members-only raw feeds. So through those feeds, they get all of the great audio and video content that ends up going in the show and a separate feed just for bonus material. Stuff that I come across that's, that's great, but just ne- doesn't quite make it into the final cut. So you get a, a, you know, a bunch of great best-of-the-left material that uh, that you wouldn't get otherwise. It, it just doesn't end up in the show. So if you're interested in membership, uh, check that out on the website bestoftheleft.com and just click the membership tab there at the top. And so now, because I just flat out don't have anything else to talk about, that will be it for today. Uh, please consider supporting the show in any way you can. Um, if you know memberships or donations aren't in the cards, uh, just tell all your friends about it. And there are a bunch of other free ways that you can support the show. And they're all listed inside a big box to support the big orange box on the website. You can stay connected to the show between episodes uh, by uh, joining up at twitter.com slash best and facebook.com slash best whichever you like. And finally links to all the music and sources used in the show are available in the show notes on the blog for every episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, soon to be 10 times a month instead of eight. Thanks entirely to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com.
4: A
7: shining sheep, the only maker that you wanna meet A dying man in a living room,
4: whose shadow bases the floor
3: My name is Mike. Could I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiber every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening,
7: do those free things that Jay asked you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.